Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Universe Within podcast. On this episode, I sat down with Linda Christine Adams, and she was recommended to me by a mutual friend of ours, Kylia Taylor, who I interviewed probably about one year ago now, uh, maybe a little bit less than that. And she's a really fascinating woman. Uh, Kylia spoke very highly of her, and uh, she's had a very fascinating life uh, from a very early age. She felt very called to to this work of healing, of service. Uh, she's kind of been around the world and studied a lot of different traditions from acupuncture and spending time in China and Vietnam to working with ayahuasca, with Shpibo people, the, the Huni Queen, the Yawanawa um, She's uh, soon going to work with Ibogo, with the Buiti people. Um, so she's had a really fascinating life. And we we sat down and we uh, talked a little bit about her story and, and the different traditions she studied in and, and about healing, about plant work. So it was a really fascinating conversation. Uh, so I hope you all enjoyed this episode. As always, if you are able to support this work, that's a really big help to me. Patreon is a really good option. It's a website. You can sign up for as little as a dollar a month. There's different tiers you sign up for. They give you different things back. Uh, it very much works on this uh, this idea of Aini, which we also spoke about in, in this um, in this podcast with Linda. Um, so if you feel like you're gaining something from this podcast, that's a really, I think, beautiful way to practice this idea of Aini, of giving something back. Um to all the people who have uh, signed up for Patreon, uh, thank you very much. As always, I, I deeply appreciate your support. And if you are able to do that, uh, that's a really big help. The different tiers give you different things back, things like early access to shows, bonus material, Q&As. Um, there's also the ability to direct donate via PayPal. I'll put a link to those in the show notes. Also, if you're watching on YouTube, you can join the channel. Um, but I think the, the Patreon actually has uh, some slightly better perks. Uh, if you're not able to do that, as always, um, helping to get the show out to bigger audience is really helpful. So sharing with friends and families. If you're listening on YouTube, hitting the subscribe button, turning on the notification bell, liking the video, that's a really big help. Leaving any questions, comments in the comment section. And if you're listening on the audio version on Apple Podcasts, leaving a starred rating and a short review, that's a really big help. And also with Spotify, uh, you have the ability to to rate the show as well now. So um, I think that's it. Uh, I'm shooting this episode quite a bit in advance. So probably when this is released, uh, my my colleague and friend Marav Artsy and I, we will have finished our plant diet in Ireland. Um, but I think we still have a spot or two open for our work in Israel and then also for the following month in New York. So we'll be in Israel in in June and then in July in New York. So that's a really beautiful opportunity to uh, go deep into this world of plant medicine. Um, predominantly, we're working with uh, tobacco and tree barks, uh, so dieting trees and tobacco is really the, the aid that allows people to have a much deeper connection, um, and there's, a, there's really profound work that can be done. Um, mostly, we're working with Amazonian trees, but more and more, we're beginning to work with a lot of North American or European trees as well. So in Ireland, we're also working with oak. In Israel, we're working with olive. And in New York, uh, we'll probably be working with oak again and maybe uh, one other tree. Uh, we're still not sure 
yet about that. Um, but if you'd like more information, you can check out my website at nicotianarustica.org. And also Murat has a site, tobaccodiets.com. So I think that's it for the intro. And without further ado, here is my conversation with Linda. So we were talking a little bit before we we started, but you were recommended to me by uh, a mutual friend of ours. I think more more of a friend of yours, uh, Kylia, who I interviewed. Um, it's probably almost a year ago now, and um, we had we had done kind of a, a panel together. I, I forget the exact topic. I, it it might have been on psychedelic integration, <laughs> something like this, one of these kind of hot topics. And, and somehow we were both on it. And, uh, and I really liked, uh, I really liked her and, and what she had to say and, and how she was saying it. So, so then I interviewed her and, uh, she's a really fascinating woman. And then she reached out to me in a number uh, of months ago, maybe two or three months. And, uh, I've been quite busy, but finally you and I were able to, to be in touch and, uh, and I saw an interview that she did with you, and uh, you, you seem like a really fascinating woman. So maybe to start, just if you could say a little bit about yourself, who you are, whatever comes to mind, where you come from, but but really what what in life uh, led you to, to be on this path that you're on? Okay, yeah, really grateful to Kylia. Um, it's a really beautiful, beautiful woman and force in the world and um, friend. And... Um, this path that I'm on, I've been, well, when I was 19, I was told by spirit that I was here to be of service. And, and my whole life, I've tried to, to do that. And so that led me to become an acupuncturist and a healer and study with people really all over the world. And um, eventually led me to plant medicine. And that is just evolved and those two paths have woven together so that the the essence of the plant medicine now comes through my work and i'm actually just in the process of closing my uh my hands-on practice and moving completely to um working remotely because i feel like i can really access that essence and be of even deeper service in in that way So how would you how would you describe the the work that you do? The remote work. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I guess all the work from from maybe the hands-on practice to to the remote work. Okay, well, I w I will start in the hands-on practice. You know, I studied really full-time for 12 years. And at the end of that, I was very you know, some of it was one-on-one -on -one mentoring and some of it was very book-oriented and I was really at a place where I needed to find a way to just learn organically. And so I had a moment where I just closed all of my books and decided that I was going to really just listen to spirit 
And when somebody was there to see me, if I didn't know, like, exactly what to do, I would just ask spirit and follow the directions. And so I did that for 20 years um, before I opened another book on that subject. <laughs> and it taught me how to learn. It taught me how to be fully connected with spirit when I need to know what needs to happen. So it was a great, in a way, it was a great healing for me as well in that way, because I think that that's a gift that we all have if we take the time to tune into it. And that's what I bring to the remote work. And the remote work is really just about tuning in and listening, you know, to what's really happening on the deeper levels within a person, within their family story, within their lineage, and really tuning into what the root is that's asking for healing. And it it can take many, um, many forms. It can be, it can come through song. It can come through wisdom downloads. It can come through energy work. Um, it's always different. So you, you started with acupuncture. How, how would you describe that? I think a lot of people are familiar with, with acupuncture, at least by name. Uh, but for you, what is what is that, and and how does that how does <clears throat> how does that work as a healing modality? Well, acupuncture is many things. It's you know in Chinese medicine there are there are nine branches of medicine, and acupuncture is just one of them. There's herbology, there's movement, there's diet, there's lifestyle, there's um, all the all the different body works and. Um, but acupuncture, it sees our body as an energetic map. You know, so people are familiar with the map of the channels. But really, there's maps and maps and maps and maps. And the way I work with it isn't necessarily what is being taught. I really, I came across the understanding that the body is holographic, like the universe. And so every part... Uh, reflects every other part and there, so there's the possibility of having a conversation through all the different openings to reach the um, place that's needing healing if that makes sense so from from that perspective uh, in 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 that traditional Chinese medicine point of view where would they say, like, how does how does sickness arise, or or what is what is the the, the cause of that? It arises from imbalance, you know, and it arises interestingly from imbalance with in the elements, you know, with the elements within our body, all the elements that are outside of us, you know, the earth, the wood, the wind, the metal, the water, the fire, all of those things, they're inside of us as well. And they can become imbalanced. They can be imbalanced because of imbalances in the elements outside or with our relationship within them. And each of those elements is also related to the organs, and each of the organs is related to an emotion. So an emotion that's too strong could imbalance an element, an organ, or 
if those are out of balance, we can have a tendency to be really having trouble, struggle with a particular emotion. So an example of that might be grief, like grief um, has its home in the lungs. And so if somebody comes with, you know, chronic respiratory stuff, you have to look at what's happening with the grief and what's happening with loss and the relationship with that. So how would you, how would you go about from that example you gave, like with, with grief and, and chronic respiratory, uh, symptoms? Because I think when a lot of people think about acupuncture, they think about laying on a table and, and they have needles put into them and, and then hopefully their problem goes away. But it seems like also what you're saying is there's, there's, there's maybe a, a psychological element, element to it, or there's, there's a past emotional resonance. How would you, how would you go about is it just treating it on the physical level via needles or are there some sort of other therapeutic modality that goes into that as well? There's both because the body doesn't exist by itself. The body is intertwined with our emotions and it is our long-term memory. In my experience, our long-term memory isn't something that resides in our brain. Our body is our long-term memory. So all of our memories, our emotions, our experiences, our traumas, and our joys, they're, they're all held in the tissues of our bodies. And they're, they're also accessible in that way. And the body has the wisdom in, in the Chinese paradigm. The body has the wisdom of sequestering those things that we're not quite ready to deal with until a later time when they can come up and we can have the tools to um, manage them. And so... <clears throat> that can be accessed through the points because the points have spirits too. It's all spirit. It can also be accessed through talking. And I also, I use my hands when I work in person. I've always got my hands on the person and working and opening and feeling and following the story in the body. And when I work remotely, I'm following the energetic story in the same kind of way. You, you mentioned this interesting idea that kind of this idea that the body is intelligent and it actually holds on to these things on a physical level, as you said, until we're ready to deal with them. So I think sometimes people think that almost that like this sickness is is something bad, but in a way maybe what you're saying is that there's actually this intelligence that that's holding on to it and then allowing it to come out when we're ready to, to deal with it. Yeah, I feel that very strongly. I really feel, you know, we are not victims of illness and no illness is visited upon us um, for any reason other than our learning and our growth. Anytime our body is expressing um disease or discomfort, it's communication from our soul and from spirit speaking through our body about something that, that is needing attention on some level. And there's, there's no, um, 
there's no judgment, there's no blame. It's just simply arising for us to have an opportunity to grow and to heal. That's, after all these years, that's my experience. I remember hearing a quote once, I think it was from Eckhart Tolle, actually, and, and he said, and it was quite profound, but he said, anytime he heard this language of war being used, he knew it was kind of ultimately a losing battle that like we're going to war against a disease or a war against a virus or a war against this or this, that, that ultimately in a sense, we're not getting to the root of the problem where we're, we're, we're fighting it on the symptomatic level. Do you think that's one of the differences in, in a lot of these traditional systems versus a lot of the ways we, we look at allopathic medicine. I mean, even if you think about cancer, it often seems like there's that same terminology, like we need to fight cancer, we need to eradicate it, uh, we need to use treatments that will ultimately kill the cancer so that it, it hopefully doesn't come back. But in that same way, we're, we're going to war with it rather than maybe trying to understand the, the, the messages that are coming through. Yeah, I, I do agree with that. And I also, that often shortcuts the opportunity to really learn from what's happening. And if we don't learn from it, then it comes back in another way. And I actually, this is totally fascinating, but um, I ran across this thing not too long ago about what side effects of medications actually are. And that is when we have something rising that's wanting to be attended to and, you know, grown from, and we take a medication that suppresses it, the side effect is that thing finding another way to get our attention so that we can really continue our life curriculum and really learn and grow. And I found that really, that really resonated with me. Very fascinating. You mentioned this idea of the, the holographic body, which similar to the holographic universe. Can, can you speak a little bit more about that? Yeah, the holographic body. It Well, we are the universe, and the universe is us, so we couldn't not be. <laughs> we couldn't not be holographic because we're part of that. And um, the way that came to me was... Um, I had the opportunity to study in Vietnam and be taken to a bunch of different types of traditional healers. And one of them worked with maps on the body, and I was already familiar with that. Like, we all know about foot reflexology. And um, I remember when I was studying that, that there are different maps, and people would argue about, like, which map was correct. Well, they're all correct. They're different layers, and it's your intention that... Um, activates the layer that's going to be helpful in that moment. And so I came back from that trip, and all of a sudden I started having all these maps show up. Like I would touch a point on the body, and I would see the, where all the connections, where it went. And so I just started developing that. And then um, my friend that I had met in Vietnam, who I had traveled with, came to visit and he showed me this book that he was writing and it was all of those maps 
it was just a very interesting, like he was writing this book and these things were arising in me. And, um, I've just taken that and integrated that into my acupuncture practice. And I also use it a lot in the remote work because there are ways in which people can, can use that for self-treatment. If you know where the different things reflect in the body, you have access to like a powerful healing tool for yourself. You mentioned in the beginning, I, I think you said it, at a young age, you were told by spirit that I forget exactly how you worded it, but that your life's mission was, was to be of service. I think some people listening, they, they may understand what you mean by that, but maybe for a lot of people that may seem strange. <laughs> so yeah. what, what does that mean to you when you say you were told by spirit? Um, well, I was 19 and I, I was really kind of a mess and I was like, I, what am I supposed to do? You know? And this, this voice, just this quiet voice said exactly that your life is to be of service. And I was like, what is that? I, I had the same question. What does that, what does that mean? And it means living my life to be of service to other beings, not just other humans, but for me, it's also to be of service to the earth because we're, we're part of her and she's also part of us. And um, that's a very strong part of my service now at this point also. But it's living my life, making choices where that is... A priority. It's it's interesting because we 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 live in a time where there's these very amazing developments that that really seem to stem to a large degree from from the intellectual mind, um, and it seems like with that there's a real I think on the one hand, a legitimate questioning of maybe anything that can't be seen or measured or, or touched or uh, discovered by some instrumentation. But one of the things that, that so many traditional cultures around the world have is this idea of spirit uh, from where you're coming from in, in, in the U.S. right now. There, there was a real reverence for Wankatanka or Great Spirit, uh, where I am here in Peru. Even a lot of this plant medicine work, they, they call it uh, plant spirit medicine, that there's this idea that these plants have spirits or that they're pointing towards spirit. Um, where Do you have any sense of... of maybe where that disconnect comes from? Because, it, it, again, it seems like in the times we're in, and, and I think to a large degree that's changing, but I think for a long time, if anyone mentioned that idea of spirit, it was it was kind of taken to be something quite silly, uh, something that, that only maybe primitive people believed in. And yet all over the world it was, uh, if not a fundamental thing, <laughs> potentially the fundamental 
primordial belief that that there that we were spirit. I mean, even built into our language, we we have these words like to breathe in in Latin and in most uh, Latin languages. It's some form of respirar to be filled with spirit. When when we die, we expire. That spirit has left us. So, I mean, it was very much, even in the cultures we come from, a fundamental part of, of what it meant to be alive, of what it meant to be a human being. Yes, and I'm going to say that the cultures that our modern cultures consider and considered um, primitive are really way ahead of us <laughs> spiritually. You know, anytime you have a chance to, or anyone has a chance to spend time with people who are still intact with their traditions, it becomes really obvious how advanced their spiritual technology is. And I feel like that disconnect came with colonization. It came with, um, it began with the first people being moved off of their land and being disconnected, losing the connection with land and being made wrong and shamed and violated for their beliefs of spirit. And then it became, it became dangerous. It became hidden. And fortunately there are places like the Amazon rainforest and, you know, different places in the world where it has managed to survive and we all have it we are all of spirit but it hasn't you know there's been like you say there's been a, a good chunk of time where it hasn't been in vogue unless it was connected with a particular religion or something like that but the direct connection with spirit um it's our ancestry, it's our lineage. All of us have intact ancestors who um, were that, who are that. And that's in all of us. And it's really, um, there's an invitation now to, to remember and to reconnect, I feel. <laughs> that's my opinion. So when you when you went to Vietnam, was that the first time you you kind of worked in another country or another culture, another lineage? In terms of healing, mm -hmm. um, my first was um, China. I went to China to study uh, traditional Chinese medicine and um, discovered that um, all the stuff that I was really excited about, about spirit and the spirits of the points and all of that had been taken out by the cultural revolution. And I felt like I was reading textbooks and there were big gaps, you know, there were pieces missing. And so I wanted to go to study in Vietnam because the cultural revolution did not happen there. And there I found, I found what I was looking for. Can you speak a bit more about that? Because I, I think that's a really important point that's often overlooked. Um, is because it, it, 
it seems like, you know, also from my understanding that, like, if you look at Tibetan Buddhism or, or in Mongolia, shamanism, they, they, they seem to, again, really have that idea of spirit. It's very much built into their practices. And often it does seem maybe with Chinese medicine that, that it, it's practiced in a way that's very similar maybe to how we practice allopathic medicine, that it's, it's very rational and, uh, you're, you're, you're treating certain symptoms, but it seems like much like if you look at Ayurvedic medicine, as you were saying, these maps, there are these very intricate maps of, of, of pranic channels or, or, or channels of chi of energy channels. And, and that, that doesn't to me seem like something that was maybe just, uh, <laughs> it didn't necessarily come from the mind. It wasn't something rational that was, that was just found out that there was, there was some way that they were connecting to that via spirit, via, I don't know, altered states of consciousness, uh, their own practices, maybe plant medicine, but that, 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 that was removed. And, and I think, as you said, via the, the, the cultural revolution in China, but, um, do you have a sense of, of maybe the origins of Chinese medicine that these other things that, that were somehow removed during that time? Well, I know there are deep roots in Taoism that contain all of that. One of my teachers is an 88th generation Taoist priest. We don't have acupuncturists. We don't have 88th generation anything in our in our culture, and that's just some other level of understanding and tradition and connection. And so there I can see where it came from, and I can see just in how he interacts with spirit and when he's teaching, he's just he's receiving, and it's just coming through, and... The medicine just comes through. Even like in my own practice, a lot of what I do, it has just come through. It's all there. It's always there. And things don't really get lost. You know, those parts of the medicine that got written out of the books, they're not lost. I mean, they are still in some traditions, but they are all still existent in the field. And when we tune in, when we reach that capability of that frequency to tune in they're there just like the wisdom of the plants you know when we're in the frequency of the plants they they communicate with us they have their songs they have their wisdom they have their potent capacities to heal and all of that is not lost it's just forgotten temporarily Do you have any sense of, of, of how in countries like China or Vietnam that those traditions were were passed down? Like what techniques they were using to, to pass on that wisdom? It was oral, oral teaching. And in China, a lot of times it was only passed to one person. You know, it was... Specifically in China, things were pretty secretive. That's my understanding. I'm not from there, so it's just my outside view. But um, 
healing healing secrets were carefully guarded and passed through families or through lineages, chosen lineages, in an oral tradition. At some point, they started and, writing them down, but but initially it was. Mm -hmm. And do you have any idea what that traditional training was? Like how how a student would would go about learning from from a teacher? Like what that process was like to to become a doctor or a healer in that way? It was ongoing and for a long time. And one thing that I'm aware of, which I find totally cool, is that. A lot of it was passed through song. So it's a lot to remember, you know, a whole list of herbs and all their functions and all their temperatures and all their tastes and all their, you know, contraindications. Just for one herb, that's a lot. <laughs> and there's a lot of them. And it was passed through song, which I think is fantastic. That access is a different part of our brain, you know. And it lives in us in a different way. Do you think those songs were, were purely, uh, in, in terms of, of passing on the, the knowledge, or do you think there was something to the song itself? Like in, in, in a lot of the Vedic traditions of India, uh, it's also that knowledge is passed through song, but uh, from, from the little I know, there was like countless hours, days, years, decades spent learning these songs, but not just the words, the actual way they were sung, like this pitch perfect resonance and, and, and cadence to, to the point where any little detail, if it was off, it would have to be worked and reworked until the song was, was kind of considered perfect, that it was, it was transmitting not just the 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 physical matter behind it but there was there was something in the essence of the song that was being transmuted yes i i totally i totally think that is a piece of it because sound is light right and light is information and so it's encoded in that frequency and it's the same with ikaros you know you don't just decide to change the melody or, you know, add your own stuff. It's, it's a frequency, it's a medicine in itself that's fully intact as when it's at its most potent. Mm -hmm. So then after, after Vietnam, what was the, what was the, the next part of your journey after that? I came back and I worked for a while and then I, I continued traveling and <clears throat> I spent a good time in Morocco learning music and language and rhythm because I didn't have much <laughs> and uh, um, learning to open my voice. That was really a piece of um, a big piece of that was I had this longing to sing and a big piece of working there was to really open my voice. <clears throat> yeah. 
Yeah, it's interesting because we we delayed this podcast a, a couple of days because there was a, a Colombian woman here, and and that's her primary work is actually the voice. Um, why why was that so important for you to to kind of free the voice or, or to open the voice to to express yourself in that way? Um, again, I, I think for a lot of people who are familiar maybe with some of these modalities, that makes complete sense, but. <laughs> I think for a lot of people, that idea of, of being a healer or a doctor, why, like, why would I need to, to, to sing or to open my voice or to be able to express myself in that way? Well, I didn't know at the time <clears throat> that this was going to be part of my healing. You can tell this is important because my voice is getting scratchy, right? <laughs> um, <clears throat> so... I just felt this desire to sing and I really couldn't sing. And I, I, it took me years to, to get around to it, but it was always there. And then as it started opening and then working with the plant medicines, they really helped me open my voice way more in, in really um, ways that I'm so grateful for to be able to carry a resonance to create healing. And I didn't know that at the time that I set out on that journey, but my soul must have known for it to be that important, you know, for me to overcome my fear of being, <laughs> being uh, seen and heard in that kind of you know, very vulnerable way. I remember sitting in my friend's house one time for my first voice lesson, and I realized it meant that I had to open my mouth. And I really wanted to leave. I really took a lot to keep me sitting there. <laughs> so, yeah, I feel like <clears throat> sometimes when we have a big gift, there's a big, uh, yeah, sometimes resistance or, you know, vulnerability there. And and why of all places did you choose Morocco? Because my friend who was my singing teacher was from Morocco. He's like an incredible, you know, he's a, he's a national treasure in Morocco. He's a library of traditional music, a living library of traditional music and um he offered to help me learn how to sing. And it was just because it was, that's just what happened. <laughs> and you, you mentioned that you were, that also through plant medicine, you're, you begin to, to, to find your voice as well. Uh, at that point in your life, had you, had you already began working with plant medicine? Those things happen at about the same time. I think the singing started a little earlier, but about the same time. And and what were what were those plants that you began working with? Um, the I had worked with mushrooms a lot as a teenager, but as an adult, the first thing that I really worked with was ayahuasca. Mm. Which, of course, loves when we sing. 
And and how did that come about, you working with ayahuasca? I was studying, um, I was studying with um, a really profound teacher in uh, New Mexico who was teaching about indigenous traditions, and he was not teaching about plant medicine, but some of the people who were there um, in conversation, it had come up. And I really liked what I saw in their eyes. Like, I really saw this clarity and this, you know, connection, and I thought, hmm, that's on my path. But I didn't go looking for it, and it, it actually took quite a few years before it came around. And I had that opportunity, and then I've been, yeah, very involved with that. What were those first uh, ayahuasca ceremonies like for you? <laughs> very humbling. <laughs> <laughs> very beautiful, beautiful enough to keep uh, coming back. <clears throat> and uh, it was something that I just... I knew it was just such a deep connection. And it reminded me that when I was a child, my very first dreams that I remember were of the jungle. But I didn't know what's the jungle. When I was a kid. I grew up in the desert. I had never seen a jungle, but I dreamt of jungle. And I dreamt of this village in the jungle with a swinging bridge and fires and lots of spirits. And I didn't... It was a recurring dream. It was a dream that I had several times, and then I just tucked it away. But when I started working with the medicine, and then when I went to the jungle, I was like, oh, that was what that was. And so it made, it made that connection for me. Can you speak a little bit about dreams? Because I think that's a... Um... It's a topic that's often overlooked, I, I feel, in a lot of this work of, <clears throat> of healing or, or plant work. Uh, mm -hmm. It seems like in a lot of these traditions, there's a, there's a really big emphasis on dreams, that, that not only is, is there a lot to be learned or things that are worked through, but also, as you mentioned, this idea of, of connection to spirit, that it, it's it's one of the primary ways in which spirit is communicating with us. It is. <clears throat> I, I feel our dreams are such, um, such an opportunity to connect, to receive information, to have deeper understanding and to also process. You know, some of our dreams are about processing what's going on. Some of our dreams are about information about what's coming. Some of our dreams are information about what has been. And I know there are so many cultures <clears throat> that feel that if we ignore our dreams, we're ignoring a big part of our life. You know, there are dreams we can travel anywhere. We're not limited by our bodies. It's their vehicles for for our spirit to have many experiences in many dimensions. They're, they're an avenue where we can seek healing. You know, we can ask for healing dreams. We can ask for information. We can, uh, we can cultivate our dreams by beginning asking in the morning. 
you know, for the dream that we want to receive in the night. And uh, they're a big part of how I how I guide my life. Are there practices you've learned or things you've you've developed in your own journey of of, of how to begin to to look at dreams or to begin to, to become more interactive with them or, or to learn from them? I think it really comes down to building a relationship with them. Like if we ignore them, they tend to go away. Or, but if we cultivate them and we cultivate that relationship by paying attention, by having an intention to dream, an intention to remember and um, if we're not remembering to write down even just a feeling, I mean, these are really common practices, but really they're super simple, but, but they work. Um, there's, uh, one of my teachers on dreams is Robert Moss and reading any one of his books is, uh, a great way to kickstart dreaming. <laughs> he, he has a great book called Dreamways of the Iroquois. And another one called Dream Gates. Both of those books are fantastic um, and full of uh, really great, great ways to get your dream life going. So then, after after your time in Morocco, what was because I know you've you, you've you spent time with a lot of different traditions and cultures. What was what was next after that for you? Next was Peru. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, getting to spend time with the Shipibo and getting to spend time, um, with, uh, a, a man who came from the Kokama and he was really, really deep in the jungle and uh he just worked solo really fantastic those are my first two encounters in peru and so you were you were like sitting in ceremonies with the people in the kokama or this kokama guy or you were you were doing some sort of apprenticeship, or what, what did that look like? Um, I was doing dieta with a guy from the Kokama, and I um, did really deep healing work, personal healing work with the Shipibo. Really took me to my, <laughs> took me to my, really testing my strength and my determination to heal, for sure. Really life changing. How would you describe ayahuasca? Uh, I, I think a lot of people listening to this, they're familiar with it. If they haven't done it themselves, they, they probably heard of it. But uh, maybe to to someone who is, isn't really familiar with it, or, or maybe they are, but they haven't gone super deep into it. How would you describe that medicine, what it is and, and how it's working and, and from your own experience, what you found through that? When you work with ayahuasca, you're working with the spirit of the plant. And when you're working with any plant, you're working with the spirit of the plant. That's why it's different than working with 
psychedelic substances that come from chemical origin. Um, and when you're working with the spirit of the plant, you have the opportunity to communicate with that spirit and to receive that spirit and its teachings in your vessel. And it's profound, incredibly profound. If one is open to it, one has the capacity to really change their life, change their tra trajectory, to really deeply heal. And there are some there are some things that happen, you know, spontaneously, healings that take place, understandings that take place, wisdom downloads, that those are there and they happen and you have them. But there's also um, there's also the responsibility that comes with working with a plant medicine, any plant medicine, which is the responsibility to do the work that you're given to do your homework. And um, without that, you can just show up and drink a lot of ayahuasca and not much will change. And that's something to be careful of because then it's not really different than any other substance that gets used in that way as a distraction. So the commitment to really um, integrate what happens and to really go home and start the real ceremony at home of, of doing the work. Yeah, that to me seems like a really interesting point and, and something that's often overlooked. And it was something I, I was thinking a lot about during the pandemic is I noticed a lot of people, especially who had worked with ayahuasca and uh, maybe understood certain principles or certain messages that they were given, but then when extrapolated to other things, it, it seemed like those principles began to vanish. <laughs> uh, from, from your experience, how... Like, how does one begin to to really honor that responsibility? But because that's a, I think that's a really big topic and, and something that's often overlooked is is taking these messages or, or these learnings or these teachings and, and actually applying them to your life. And often, you know, it, it's really interesting. Uh, like. Uh, one thing I often find quite amusing when I'm, when I'm facilitating ayahuasca ceremonies is, is, is I may say something, uh, usually very simple, um, and, and a natural response is, oh yeah, yeah, I, I know that. <laughs> but the, the putting it into practice is maybe lacking. And, and if we can know something on an intellectual level, but it's a very different thing to embody that. Yeah. And and it seems like a a lot of with some of these plants we can we can learn and and potentially understand things in a very deep level, but but it's a very different thing to actually embody that to to bring that from that that realm that these plants are, are putting us into, as you said, this realm that's really infinite, mm -hmm. where we're not bound by time or space or, or life or death. Uh, but bringing that into this physical reality, which is a reality, and, and it's the reality that, that most of us are spending most of our time in, but this very concrete reality of, 
of time, of space, of, of action and, and words and, and doing. Um, is there anything you've, you've learned from your experience of, of how to go about doing that? Because it seems like that's often, there's a break there. There's a, there's sometimes a, a not wanting to take that responsibility. And I, I think, as you said, that's, that's a really important point is when we begin to work with these, it's, it's, do we want that responsibility? And I think often the answer, if people are really honest with themselves, the answer may be no, like I actually don't want that responsibility. Yeah. Sometimes when we make a prayer and set an intention for a ceremony and we receive it, sometimes that's a lot, you know, sometimes it's, it can even be, a little scary to have the openings that we thought we wanted and were ready for, you know, and it takes having, I believe, and for me, it takes having a really grounded um, meditation practice. I remember one, one ceremony in particular where that was just so clear, the opening was so vast, and I, I really, I didn't want to lose it. And I, I realized if I didn't meditate like twice a day, it was going to fade away. That was like the information that came with it. And so I, I did that. And that allowed that energy, the space to really take root. If I hadn't done that, maybe it had just been another vision. You know, so we have to create time. Well, we don't really create, I guess we do create time because <laughs> it's a consensual reality that we agree upon, but, um, we have to make space in our, in our lives for those things to grow as if they are a plant that's growing in us, the openings that come. And if we just go on about our life in our busy way and, um, we don't do that, we missed a a big opportunity and sometimes it takes a while for that to come around again. And here I want to talk about a little bit about the privilege that we have to have access to these plant teachers and the responsibility also that comes with that because they travel a long way and they come from cultures that also deserve our, our really deep respect. And the fact that they're being shared in the greater world now, it's a big deal. And they, the plants, they're not infinite plants, you know, so when we take it, it's really important that we honor that and that we honor the journey that it's taken and the tribes that it's come from and the traditions that it's come from. And even the transformation that the plants themselves go through being pounded and, you know, and the whole process is just so huge for it to come and arrive on our doorstep. Um, that that, yeah, that really needs to be honored. And that is what calls forth that level of respect to really do the work if we're going to actually sit with them. Do you think that's where this idea of sacredness is really important and that 
Also from my experience, the, these plants, there, there may be some exceptions, but, but it, it seems like the, the, the vast majority of the time, they were used in a very sacred way. There was always a ceremony around them. There, there was a ritual, there was a preparation, there was an integration. Uh, they, were, they were given a lot of respect and time and um, even even working with plants now myself, one, one of the really common questions is, <laughs> uh, you know, when I'm done with this process, can can I work with this plant after? Can I work with this plant after? And and it seems like a, a lot of that is 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 also there's a sense of, of maybe that the sacredness is lost that of really giving these things that their time, their space, as you said, to, to really meditate with that in a way to, to sit with that process and really allow it to unfold. And, and it seems like, I, I think for a lot of people, and, and maybe it's just a product of our time, but we want more. And there's this idea that the more I do, the, the, the more I'll get, and, you know, taking five plant medicines is better than one because it's five times the, the knowledge or five times the power. Um, but to really have patience, to, to really slow down. And and maybe it's a nod that, that I need more, but it's really, really going very deeply into whatever, whatever plant or, or tradition I am working with. Yeah, I think it comes back to relationship. It's the building of a relationship, which always takes time. And building a relationship with the spirit of that plant and the understanding of how it works with you because they don't work with all of us in exactly the same way and finding our own way with it and learning how to learn from the plant we're working with. I agree that the taking space and honoring it in that way that's that's really important and to not to not use things just to use them that's something i see a lot with hape is that it gets used just to do something just to feel the high from it but the teachings from the tribes from which that comes specifically from the yuanawa um, in the Brazilian Amazon, is it's a medicine of prayer. It's a medicine of focus, and you do not use it unless you have a prayer. It's and and that using it, it's such a powerful, powerful medicine that unlike ayahuasca, that that gives us energy, the hape, if it's used over and over and over, it starts to drain our energy, and. Yeah, it's it's very important to respect all of the medicines in how we use them in a mindful, sacred way, and not just because we want to. Yeah, I, I remember spending time. I spent a bit of time with the, the Matses, and uh, and then also. Uh, uh, Colombian guy who, who I like a lot. He, he comes from a group of people called the Tubu. And when I was with the Matses, uh, because I often felt that way with Rape too, that it was just, it was being very casually used. And <clears throat> when I was with the Matses, it was, uh, they were like, okay, you, you want to do Rape? I was like, well, yeah, 
okay. And, uh, and they pulled out this very long tube. <laughs> and, uh, and I, uh, you know, I'll never forget that, that first shot. I mean, it, it literally sent me flying back and it was just incredibly strong. And, and I felt like I couldn't breathe and I was choking. And finally, after a few minutes, I, I sat up and I was like, okay, I, I survived. And, and he takes it out again and he's like, okay, other nostril now. <laughs> and uh and it, also with this guy amika i think one of the really important things and, and it kind of goes to, to what we were speaking about is one thing that, that i really like about how he works is 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 before any plant is worked with always the story has to be told and i think that's really important in a few different ways one one is that it, 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 it in a way, it, it creates a ceremony. It, you can't just use rape or any medicine. There's, it, it inevitably makes it into a ceremony because you're in a circle. That there's a story that's being told. Um, there's kind of an honoring or respecting it. Where did it come from? What is its medicine? How should it be worked with? What are maybe reasons it shouldn't be worked with? Um, and there's a deep teaching in that. And it, I think it, it begins to teach and, and also we really learn to respect it and, and why to use it and how to use it. Um, and then also with that story, as he would say, there, there's like códigos de sanación. There's like these healing codes that are actually transmitted through the story, that it's not just the medicine itself, although the medicine is extremely powerful, but there's actually something in the story. There, there, there's a teaching and... And I think very similar maybe to in, in some of the, the cultures that maybe we come from, this idea of myth or legend, that these aren't just simple stories. There's, there's a tremendous teaching behind them if we really begin to, to be receptive to them. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's, it's a fascinating thing. And, and yeah, I think Arape is, is certainly one of those medicines and, and when it is worked with, it's it's also it's a very very strong medicine. It's it, it's not something that's just taken very casually. It's it has a lot of a lot of force, and and I think people have really felt that when it when they use it in that traditional way. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not something that we're necessarily excited. I mean, I think any of these <laughs> any of these very strong mm -hmm. plants, uh, you know, it's. I think it's very normal to have a lot of fear or respect going into it because that, that also means in a way that you're, you're entering a place that's outside of our comfort zone. And, and, and that in a way is where the real power of these medicines take effect. If, if we're just using something in a casual way or there, there's no cost or there's no price or there's no reciprocity to it, there's also a limit to the teaching. You know, that's, I think that's also part of, in a way, what you're saying is, you know, there has to be a giving of something. And, and sometimes that giving could be purely financially or, or a sacrifice, like in a dieta. But if we're not really giving something of ourselves, there's also a limit maybe to, to what those medicines can, can give us. Right. Without the reciprocity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because without that, there's not a relationship, right? There's just a taking 
which is kind of the modern way. We take, we take, we take, but we don't really give back. And something that all traditional cultures have is they have all always been offering cultures and have really understood the reciprocity, the Aini, the giving back. And it's something we're being revi in, really invited to remember. You know, if humanity really wants to continue on this planet, we have to remember that. Are, are there ways you, you found for yourself or, or, or teachings that you've, you've learned of, of how to give back? Because I think that's a, that's a really common question a lot of people have is, is maybe they're, they're beginning to understand the importance of, if you mentioned like Aini, this, this Andean idea of, of reciprocity and, and I think people are beginning to understand maybe the importance of that, but I think there's often people are in a way just unsure, like, how do I do that? What, what, what is, uh, what are, what are good practices of ways to actually give back in that way? Mm. And, and obviously it's very specific depending on the person, their, their means, where they're working, how they're working, who they're working with. I mean, there's so many variables, but. Are there any kind of maybe like simple practices that you've learned that can be really, really helpful in that way? Yeah, I spent uh, quite a bit of time studying with Martin Prechtel, which some, some people know him from The Secrets of the Talking Jaguar and many of his other books, a very profound, profound teacher. And we spent a lot of time on that. This is where we began. And we began with learning how to ask permission. Like the natural world isn't there for us to just take whatever we want. The, the uh, practice of, of cultivating that um, asking of permission is really profound. And it that's what begins to build the relationship. You know? Because with embedded within that is the understanding that everything is sentient. The tree, the root, the rock, the leaf, all of it, the birds, the animals, it's all sentient. And it's not ours. It doesn't belong to us. It belongs to itself. It belongs to the earth. And so when we ask permission, we are showing our respect and we're showing our understanding and we're experiencing our understanding of that, which is a really important, important first step. And then waiting for the answer, because sometimes the answer is not yes. You know, it might not be yes. It, <laughs> and you might not have acted, asked in the right way. Um, which reminds me, at one time, I was asking permission to, to use this, it was the rib of a horse, and I wanted to use it to um, make a bow for a fiddle. And I kept asking permission, and I kept getting no, and I kept getting no. It was like half an hour, and I was like, finally this little thought came, maybe this horse didn't speak English. So I asked it in Spanish, and I got an immediate yes. You know, so sometimes we have to understand what it is and who it is that we're asking, you know. <laughs> so um, there's that. And then 
to give a gift in the teachings and the way that I understand that needs to be something that's made by us, like giving back something that nature made. Well, we didn't make that. But if we make something with our voice, it could be a song. Um, some cultures use cornmeal because that's been ground, so it's been changed by the human hand and the human heart. Or tobacco, same with that. Um, those are ways from this continent, you know, that are used for, for giving a gift. And beads are used, and, you know, you can be creative. You don't have to do what other cultures have done. Just something from your heart, something that has meaning to you that you're sharing and gifting. You, you mentioned this really interesting idea um, about the difference between working with what might be described as plant medicine uh, versus psychedelics, versus a, a synthetic substance that that the difference is, is one has spirit. And it, it seems like a lot of the direction that this work is moving towards as it expands very rapidly out outside of where a lot of these traditions or cultures originated from is it is moving in this more clinical way of working with an isolated substance that's been extracted or synthesized and Certainly there's, there's a lot of advantage to that in a way. Uh, it can be measured, it can be um, kind of studied. There's a lot less variables that go into it, a tremendous <laughs> right. amount less variables that go into it. Um, but as you said, it it seems like for for a lot of people, there, there's something missing in that, and and as you described it, this idea of spirit. So, do you have a sense of of like can these two ways of working, if we are going to kind of divide them in, into two camps, is there is there a way they can be worked together? Uh, do you think there's a benefit to to this kind of more what's often called psychedelic assisted therapy verse? versus a more traditional spirited approach, working in ceremony, working with what may be called a shaman or a curandero, someone who's actually going into the energetics of, of these plants or, 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 or these practices versus uh, taking a substance in a clinical setting with, with a psychologist or, or a therapist and, and, and working, working in that way. Well, one, one thing that I think about that is not everybody is ready to access ceremony. That the level of comfortability, if that's a word, it's my word, um, when that isn't necessarily there for everybody. And so if people can access um, it in a clinical setting and they need that help, then... You know, the world needs a lot of healing, and that's a good thing. 
the access thing. And then there's other people who are, you know, really seeking that other layer with the spirit. It's not to say that people won't contact spirit with the other. They will. I think that, you know, because we are spirit, we always have contact with that, but just the substance itself. So that's what I think about it. I think it's, it's, it's good on the, on the level that it creates accessibility for a wider audience that wouldn't necessarily access the plants and the traditional ceremonies. Mm-hmm. So after coming to Peru, you, you were working with ayahuasca. Can you also talk a little bit about that process of dieta? Because I think that's, that's also something that's becoming more well-known. More people are becoming interested in that. What was, how, how would you describe the dieta and what was, what was that like for you? I can ex- describe my experience of it. <laughs> being hungry (laughs) because that's a piece of the sacrifice you know that we that we let go of uh needing to have that level of uh food that we're used to in this modern culture and to really allow space and for our bodies to be in a place that's simple enough metabolically for the plants to really work and um, I what I really love about it is the the depth what I really love about it is being in the jungle by myself with a plant that I'm working with and the depth and the doors that that can open And the le- and you know the level of connection with the natural world that just spontaneously happens when you're in that setting and you're that open. Whenever we simplify our diet or fast, um, we can access a layer of that. But then to add a plant that you're working on, working with at the same time is just another whole other level. Why do you think that aspect is is so important? Because it's it's something that that happens in the dietas. There's a real restriction of food or, or restriction of any sort of stimuli that's coming in. I mean, usually you're 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 isolated. There's there's nothing per se to do in the way that we would often think of doing. There's maybe no reading. There's no TV. There's no being on your cell phone. There's there's no talking to people, uh, and then obviously there's there's the ingestion of the plant. But but even that that aspect of of being isolated that's that's something you find in in traditions all over the world. Whether it's a, a vision quest or going into a cave for for many days or, or months, or really not not eating not eating at all or not eating much. 
sometimes fasting from from liquid water as well uh, being in isolation not not doing things why do you think that's that's been such a a big part of these traditions all over the world that they they seem to have seen that there is there's a deep healing and, and a deep chance of learning in, in that particular environment. I think in that particular environment of isolation that we come into uh, resonance with the frequency of the earth. And that is our natural frequency. And that we, in the modern world especially, we live so much in our minds that our minds are, are not in frequency with the earth. And being isolated in that way, it's an opportunity to let our minds become more still. Hopefully for them to become still so that we can really integrate with the earth and with the plants and with our own soul. Because the activity of the modern mind, I do not believe, is the natural state of, of the mind for humanity. I think the natural state is the mind is still, and it's in service to the heart and to the soul, and to carrying out the, the deepest desires of the heart and soul. It's not about being busy. So when we're in nature and we begin to let go and that begins to soften and it begins to quiet, incredible transformation can happen. It seems like in a lot of society, uh, I mean, even what we're doing now wouldn't be possible 10 years ago even maybe 10, but that not, not 15 or 20. Um, and it's fascinating because on the one hand, in order to do this conversation, it would have taken a lot more time. One of us would have had to, to pack up our bags, to, to go to the airport, to fly somewhere, to, to, to drive to where the other person was, to, to set up, to, to, to do this interview. And, and so on the one hand, technology and and kind of this digital world we're moving towards it does make things easier in a way but it also seems like with that the pace of life is becoming much more rapid because we have the ability to do so many things easier we take on more things and so it seems like a lot of people are experiencing you know, if you look, even if you look during the pandemic, uh, rates of anxiety increase, depression, suicidal tendencies, feelings of, of just being overwhelmed. And it, it, it seems like, you know, in this age, these things are really sicknesses of our time, too. And, and it seems like there's, there's a correlation, and, and I, I would imagine a causation of the more we move into this technological sphere, uh, things just become much faster there there's a there's a, a, a real increase in, in the pace of, of our lives of our minds um, and it, it seems like a lot of people think 
that, that that's a natural progression and it, it just it continues to move in that direction and eventually maybe we have glasses where we have all this information and then maybe there's a chip in our brain and it's just you know, like it's because if you think even the difference between 10 years ago and today the amount of information we have the, the pace of life has has increased exponentially and if you extrapolate that if it is increasing exponentially what does life look like in 10 years and 20 years and 100 years uh do you think the human being can adapt to that or there's also a point where something has to break <laughs> that that there is a limit to 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 what the the human body is capable of the human mind um because it seems like sometimes one of the things that that maybe people who are proponents of that seem to maybe overlook is that the human being isn't separate from from nature that no matter how advanced we become we still have to drink water we still have to eat food <laughs> we still have to exercise uh, there's still a tremendous as you said a, a healing benefit in being touched in touching in embracing in in moments where we're not doing but we're we're being um so do you have any thoughts on on because it's also interesting that at the same time this kind of technological advancement is happening there also seems to be a symbiotic relationship where more and more people are becoming interested in these more traditional ways of of healing of, of being of of potentially going back to the land. Uh, I mean, I, I remember even when I was a kid, it was always, and, and again, maybe this is just my, my memory, but it seemed like everyone wanted to go to the city <laughs> because they wanted the, the fast pace of life. They, they wanted to be in the thick of things. And it seems like now for a lot of people that that isn't necessarily their priority they, they they may still do that because that's where opportunity is there's certainly enticement to being in that but it seems like even in the collective consciousness there's there seems to be more of a desire i even just hear people speaking about wanting to go back to the land wanting to have a more simple life wanting to to do things that 50 years ago would have been considered primitive. Like, you know, 50 years ago, if you said, I wanted to be a farmer, people would laugh at you like, well, that's silly. That's, that's, that's what poor people do, or that's what uneducated people do. And now it seems like there's maybe there's a breaking point where people are like, I, I can't keep doing what I'm doing. Like I'm actually longing to go back to that simplicity. Well, that is home. Right. I'm going to um, touch into Taoist philosophy here and the basic theory of yin and yang, yin being quiet, still yang being active and, uh, you know, always moving. And the basic theory is that whenever one gets completely to its extreme, it transforms automatically into its opposite. And so it's not a, an infinite trajectory of getting faster and faster. At some point, I believe it's going to shift in whatever way that happens. 
And it's already starting, as you say. You know, there is that longing for stillness, to be connected to the land, to work with the plants, to, you know, find our inner peace. And to find the stillness of our our true essential being. And it's a choice also. It's a choice for each of us. How much do we engage with that? That always being, always doing. And you know, we talk about addictions to substances, but anything that we do as a form of distraction is really an addiction and it's really covering up something essential that needs attention. And so there is, you know, it's not like that's my idea, that's that's just something that's going on, is this addiction to technology and devices and It's a different kind of isolation, isn't it? But it's not the healthy kind. And it's a different frequency. It doesn't take us into unity. And it's not a frequency that is ultimately healthy in our natural system. It's a great tool, though. <laughs> Otherwise, we wouldn't be having this conversation. You know, it, it's allowing for all kinds of miraculous, wonderful things to happen on the planet. And um, like any tool, we get to use discernment about <laughs> how we access it. Do you think in that in that way, you use this idea of yin and yang? Uh, sometimes people use this this image of, of a pendulum swinging to extremes. And, and it, it seems like it, it's very difficult for, for humans, for individuals to find that, that balance. It almost seems like a natural tendency. I mean, you can see it in all aspects of life. You, you see it in politics, for example. But this, this idea of things begin to move one way and it's often only until they get to an extreme do we begin to push back against that. But when we push back, even that act of pushing back kind of begins to set the pendulum in the opposite motion. And 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 then it, it often has to get to this other extreme before we push back. And, and, and so it's kind of this back and forth. And do you think, because often in, in a lot of these uh, these traditions throughout time, they also spoke about time that way, that there was, there was these tendencies of time where things would begin to move in one direction and reach an extreme, and then there was some awakening or some collapse, and, and then things would go in a different direction. Um, because even if you think about like you were mentioning Taoist philosophy or, or or Buddhism, they they weren't talking about anything different than what people are 
dealing with right now. They're, they were still talking about the human condition. They were talking about addiction. They, they may not use that word, but they were talking about the, the nature of the human mind. That, um, and it's, it's the same nature that we're also dealing with today. But it, it does seem like perhaps these teachings arose in a time where there was there was a need for that or or those things were were coming to the surface um so do you do you see time in that way kind of a similar yin and yang way where there are times where these things are coming to the surface or or it's just constantly these things are always there and and it's just always something that's that's being worked with in in whatever way it needs to be during that time I think that perhaps it's both, right? They're always there, and then there are times that have greater extremes, and we <laughs> happen to be in one of them, you know? But that's always, that story is always evolving. Yeah. So after your your time with Shibibo and Kokama, where where did your journey lead you after that? Um, to the Brazilian Amazon. I mentioned the Yuanawa, also the Huni Queen. Um, but I've spent the most time with the Yuanawa. It's been incredibly profound and I would really love to um, share a story of the first time I went there because it kind of speaks to this time and to leadership in this time. And I, I had heard their music and I just fell in love with their music. And so I had gone online and I learned a song and I was, you know, singing it to myself. And then like a week later, I received this email and it said that I had signed up for this um, ayahuasca retreat with someone I didn't know. And I was like, and I should send my deposit. I was like, hmm, I don't know, that's pretty weird. But I just had this hit, so I sent my deposit and I drove for nine hours to get to Oregon to, to sit for one night. And it turned out it was the guy who sang the song that I had learned. And I was like, well, that's pretty interesting. And then he mentioned that he was going to the Yuanama, and I just asked him if I could go with him, and he said yes. And so when we were there and we were traveling by boat up the river, I just started weeping. I was just crying. And I just felt like something really big was coming. And I didn't know what it was and like three different times I just started weeping and we arrived there and it's this beautiful village you know with the grassy ceremonial space and the thatch huts and we get there and um the chief is speaking to us Nishiwaka and he tells us that he this was their ceremonial village you know, traditionally, ancestrally, and that it was the place where contact happened. First contact for them happened there in the time of his grandfather. And they had not done ceremony there. 
since then. They had not lived there. And the, all the structures that we saw, they built with the money that we paid to go there. And that just made me cry. That was like so touching to have had the honor to be a part of rebuilding their traditional village, a ceremonial village. And then it was his birthday. It was on the occasion of his birthday. And he, what he wanted for his birthday was to recreate contact, to create a second contact with people who love and respect them, to give back to their people what had been taken by the first. This makes me want to cry. It's super profound. And so he had invited five people from one from Australia, one from Europe, Brazil, this country, I don't remember the other one, to bring their friends, to be the ones to create the second contact and to give back the respect, you know, the self-worth, the understanding of, you know, the depth of sacredness of what they have. It was incredibly, incredibly profound. And just the truly visionary understanding of that, you know, that he and his wife, Putini, had was just incredible. Really incredible. And to be someone who's um, invited into traditional ceremony and a really sacred place like that who's from this culture where we all whether we acknowledge or understand it we all carry the shame and the guilt of what has happened you know and to have that opportunity of healing was yeah it's huge How would you how would you describe the difference? I think a lot of people listening to this may be familiar with uh, some of the Shipibo lineages or the Shipibo lineage. How would you describe the the difference of of the work that that you experienced uh, with the Yanawada and the the Huni Queen? Um, I would say it's very different. It's um. As soon as the force of the medicine comes, everyone gets up and holds hands and walks in a circle, and everybody is invited to sing, you know, to listen until you get the words and to participate in creating, you know, the song, the prayer, the that frequency of calling and healing. And... It also, it makes you responsible to be in sync with everybody. You know, your feet have to be in sync. You can't be crashing into people. You have to pay attention. You, you know, you have to be part of a larger organism. It's not about having your private little ceremony and your journey. It's about... It's about participating in community and co-creating this healing, which is really, really cool. Um, and so that, that happens the first part of the night, and it's all traditional, you know, chanting, 
calling the spirits of the forest, the healers, the ancestors, the pages that came before, um, the shamans that came before. And in the second part of the night, um, they really have fallen in love with some instruments from outside of the Amazon, like guitars and drums from Africa. And so those, those get pulled out and then the dance changes, but you're still holding hands and you're still approaching and, but you're in lines now, you're still approaching and falling back from the musicians and the altar. And you're still responsible for being, for being, you know, part of something bigger than yourself. And one of the things, these are my words and just my experience, but, um, it feels like a very strong way to cultivate um, community and to cultivate tribal mind. And these days I hear people using tribal as a um, pejorative thing, as something that's not healthy, like the tribal mentality of, you know, but really tribal mind is, is way, it's older than that and it's super beautiful. It's when we understand it's not all about us. It's about the whole. It's about doing what we need to do to be in sync with the whole community and make the whole community thrive. And to really understand that we're part of the larger community of the earth as well. And that particular type of ceremony really um, fosters that. Can you speak a little bit more about that? Because th that's a topic I find interesting. And I mean, not not wanting to go into politics too much, but but politics is certainly part of life as well. And as you said, it that 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 term like tribe mind is used very pejoratively, and I find it very paradoxical because a lot of people speak about things like diversity and inclusivity. But it also seems like with that, there is this kind of like hive mind of, of everyone needs to think the same or believe the same or have the same moral values or and, and, and if they don't, then they're kind of demonized. And and it seems like that that kind of what you were describing of that 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 tribal way is also recognizing like the beauty in these communities that that this is a community that has their own traditions, they have their own beliefs, they have their own mor morality, they, they, they think differently, they have a different cosmovision. And it's not that one is inherently better or worse, but, but they're unique, they're different, and, and really trying to preserve that. And it, it seems like there's a disconnect for a lot of people between like seeing that that's really important, but also extrapolating that out to a bigger picture at large that that as you said like we all we are all we are all looking for our tribe in a way uh, a certain sense of community of of people who do share a certain cosmovision and, and want to live life in a certain way and that in a way like that difference is beautiful that, that there's maybe another tribe or another group of people who's going to have a completely different cosmovision <laughs> and that that's okay. Like we don't all have to think the same or believe the same or, or force our way 
because that that is the essence of colonization is believing that that my way is the only way and it's something i see that's happening a lot in the world right now is it kind of that same colonial mentality that everyone needs to think the way i think or do the way i do and if we don't we can demonize them that they're they're somehow less than or other than um but really honoring that that tribal mentality and it it also seems like that's part of that desire as as we were saying of going back to the land of of beginning to to become more in touch with that is is finding our own ways and, and really honoring those differences and and seeing that there is so much wisdom in these different ways of being these these different ways of life these these different ways of looking at the world yeah we're all flowers right every flower blooms in its own way and there's beauty in every single one of them all of our cultures are like flowers and you know there are like um this is something in the andes but it's something in many many indigenous cultures is that each each community had its own um design for their clothing so that you could tell where what village somebody was from by the embroidery or by the beadwork or or whatever you know and it was something celebrated i really believe that the the lack of celebration of the other and the lack of um understanding around that is clouded by fear and it's deep and it's old it's ancestral you know it's it i believe that it goes all the way back to losing our connection with the earth and it's really easy now it actually comes from martin uh, it's really easy to demonize people who have that connection because of something that we don't have and that we were taught was very wrong and that we were shamed for ancestrally way back you know but it still is coming forward and through us and the reality is that the people who have the traditions still they're the seed pods of this new world that we could build you know that's why there are teachers now if we're open and receptive it actually reminds me of i don't know if you've ever read a story like the wind it's written by Lawrence Vanderpost who grew up in Africa and his his nannies were um from the sun from the bushmen and a very interesting book his father was a teacher and he he taught the native people but he never made room to learn from them and it was a root of a lot of sickness in his life and he eventually died from that lack of receiving very powerful beautiful eloquent book you know we're all here to receive and learn and we are all connected we're just nobody that's separate not from the earth 
not from the plants, not from each other, no matter how different we look, or believe, or worship, or pray. Yeah, it reminds me, I, I mentioned this this guy, Amika, um, and the Tubu had this beautiful story that, that in, in ancient times, humanity was, was really suffering and, and that the, the Tubu, the, the kind of the essence of who they were, like heard this, this call of suffering from humanity. And they, he said that they, they actually originated in, in Sirius and in, in the star Sirius. And that when they heard this, this call of suffering, they, transcended the 12 dimensions of time and space and, and showed up on this this verdant canopy of the Amazon jungle and they they transcended these 12 dimensions and this primordial anaconda canoe and and in this canoe they, they brought all of these these medicines these plant medicines to to help humanity remember who they were and where they came from um, which I find fascinating because it's also, as we were speaking a little bit earlier, that this idea that kind of this suffering, this disconnect, uh, I think as you very wisely put it, this fear, this primordial fear which exists in all of us, which I think for a lot of people is really hard to see because part of the fear is is like, as Amika would say, the like the big dizziness of life that we're all under. <laughs> and when we're under it, we can't see it. It's very difficult. We, we really have to step outside to see like at its root, this connect is coming from. Um, and also this kind of prophecy that they have, which is that we are entering this time of what he would call the Dido Amasa, the, the children of the new dawn, the, the people who can take the medicine from the four directions and, and create a new Maloka, which is also symbolic of, of a new earth, a, a new universe. And which I think is also really important because like you were saying, it's, it's recognizing that everyone has medicine, that, that all of these cultures, all of these tribes from all over the world, from the North, the South, the East, the West, they have their own medicine and and to truly create a new earth we we have to bridge all of those we have to bring those together to create these pillars of this maloka uh, so that a, a new earth can can be born where where there is this uniting force rather than this divisive force which which is at its root what what war is what fear is that the division the the, the not honoring the other, the seeing the other is different is somehow less than or better than or um, and yeah, so there's there is there there's a tremendous power in these stories and these traditions. Um, I think in the in the podcast or the the interview that i I listened to you with Kylia, you were saying that you also did a dieta with the either the yeah or the the like can't remember yeah or yeah. yeah and um that it was interesting because you were only drinking uh, i don't know how they call it there but maybe here they call it masato it was just like a a fermented you could drink and that mm -hmm. that that was actually the diet was just sustaining yourself on that. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? Because that's actually something I'm, I'm not really so familiar with. Yeah, it was a month-long dieta. 
and um, it was way less food than any other diet I've ever done. Uh, it was less than a meal. It was like a ball of green banana and a little scoop of white rice with no salt. And um, and then the name for it there is Kaisuma. And it's it's a profound way to really simplify everything inside and out you know i don't know that i actually have words it's it took me to a place of such stillness and such connection with the earth It took me to a place of being very childlike, in a way, and, and with just so much clarity. And it was, it was interesting because it was um, part of that dieta. It's the first step in their spiritual process, the Kaisuma diet, and part of that is learning the traditional songs but i was so <laughs> i mean we had enough to drink you know with that but i was still so dehydrated maybe that was a belief in my mind i don't know um i really i couldn't sing <laughs> uh, and how yeah, we were responsible to to learn songs and to sing them and be corrected like you were talking about earlier like it's important that the melody is exact the pitch is exact the words are exact the intonation all of that and being in that very clear clean state and very uh, reduced amount of energy and being responsible for this and to to sing it <laughs> it was very powerful very powerful, but those songs are in there, and they're deep, and they're profound, and um, it's a really beautiful, beautiful, strong process, which of course also involved a ceremony every other night, as well as often during the day, so it was, it was a beautiful, completely life-changing experience. And that was ceremony with, you were working with ayahuasca? And hape. Since that's one of their traditional medicines also. So after that, was there, was there somewhere else you went or? I am getting ready to go to Gabon in Africa. And um, yeah, that came from that particular plant, Iboga, has been on my radar for a while, and it just wasn't time. And then I had the opportunity to to work with it uh, recently, and 
the opportunity opened up to go spend a couple months in the village in Africa. And uh, it's a very clear yes. Didn't really have to think about it. And it coincides with a time where I'm closing my practice, as I mentioned earlier, my in-person practice. And um, so I just happen to be free at the moment and available for that. And is that working with the in the Bwiti tradition? Mm, yes. <laughs> do you do you know or do you have a sense of of how that looks like, uh, like how long the process is, and and what you'll be what you'll be doing? Um, it's it's a two month process, and the first two weeks are one's own healing, and. I'm excited about that. I mean, it's just the first uh, the first week that I spent working with it recently <laughs> was completely life changing um, in a very beautiful, profound way. So there's two weeks, and then there's ten days of initiation. But I understand, and then um, training to work with it. What do you think is that that difference, or maybe there is no difference? It's because as you just mentioned, like the first ten days are for healing, uh, for personal healing, and and that's often a, a theme that's spoken of a lot. You you hear it with Shpibo is, for example, there may be healing dietas, and then there may be learning dietas. So, what do you think is that that balance or, or that difference between working with these plants for own personal healing and then also working with them to to learn from the plant i think it's like with any healing unless we do our own healing we don't really have access to as much it's really in our own healing that you know the doors of understanding open and that we really become an elder whether it's in chronological years or experiential years, and have that depth of experience and wisdom to offer. If we don't do our own healing, we don't, yeah, we really don't have, we don't know. How could we know? And, and do you think from that, that personal healing, through going through that, that there's a, I mean, obviously we can only learn from, from ourselves, from where we're at, but that through that, through that journeying, through that internal healing process, there's also a, an understanding of, of the nature of, of suffering, of, of healing, of the human being. Because I think, for example, like, you know, if you use a really extreme example, um, like rape, I think most people wouldn't want to experience rape in order to understand, like, what is the path of healing through that. But that potentially someone could have another experience and maybe still experience similar emotions or things that may arise from that. 
things of guilt or shame or inferiority, fear. Um, and so do you think through that internal healing there there's just there's an understanding of of the mechanism of of what one is is going through and and how to transcend that and then that can be applied to to the world at large i do you know we learn so much from our own healing you know there's often i mean there's a thing that's said about being a healer this it's not an easy path right there's so many things that come to to test you and to um, give you experiences so that you can understand so many different things. And, and there are, I don't know if templates is the right word exactly, but there are certainly... Um, ways that I have seen of learning and experienced healing, um, working with the plants that I can take and I can apply in any other kind of healing situation and help people understand what, what is the process? What is the process when you have a deep trauma coming up and asking to be healed? What can you, how can you work with it without just talking about it for years? You know, what is the actual mechanism, like you said, um, to navigate that? That seems to be a really common theme in, in a lot of traditions or, or shamanic paths is this idea of suffering or, or isolation, deprivation, uh, internal work, uh, kind of going into the darkness, like seeing our own demons. Um, do you think that's really, that's an integral part, like that's a necessary thing that, that one has to go through in order to, to be able to transcend that? It's a really great question. It's definitely a very common path. You know, in some ways we're so well protected. You know, the stuff that we carry, our wounds, they're so well protected that sometimes it takes a good bit to crack them open, to get them to come up where we're actually willing to see them. I don't think it's the only way. There's never only one way, you know. There's also spontaneous healing. One of the things that I've always fascinated, fascinated with is the fact that the studies that are done with people who have multiple personalities, where one personality can have diabetes, which you can measure in the blood, and when they switch to the other one, they don't have it. It's gone, which isn't infinitely hopeful in terms of what's possible with healing, that it can be spontaneous and it can very much have to do with changing our story, changing our mind, changing our resonance with whatever the thing is. 
So when, when you're working remotely with someone, how, how does that look like? How does that look like, or, or I guess I can't say how does that feel for the person because it's obviously going to be very different, but what is, what does that process look like for, for the patient? And, and, and how would you describe for yourself what, what you're doing or, or what you're trying to, to work on or to experience? So it's a phone call. I don't work with video. It's just phone. And um, the person can be comfortable. They could be lying down. And I'm sitting and I set up an altar. And I listen. Well, first we check in, right? I want to know what's happening with them. I want to know in their own words. I want to feel what they're saying. I want to see, feel it. That's a word we don't have, but it would be a great word to invent, to see, feel. And um, then I just let, I just let it unfold. Um, I, it's like I'm watching a film. It's like I'm watching a little movie and the ideas and the things that need to happen just come into the field. And it's not from a place of thinking. It's a place of arising. And it could be a song. It could be a drum. It could be... I made these gold and silver needles because gold and silver were my first uh, helpers when I started healing. I had these two presences and I asked them, who are you? And they said gold and silver. And so over the years, I've just developed my relationship with them and I, I work with them and move the energy into such beautiful, beautiful spirits in the world of healing. Um, it can be many different things. It could be Reiki. It could be, it's just, it's just what comes there's certain frequencies of light that come through in healing. And I just open myself to be the vessel for what needs to come through for that person. Sometimes it's, it's wisdom that just drops in to be shared in the moment. It's very fluid and uh, different every time. It's interesting because I, I was having a conversation with a, a friend of mine the other day, and uh, she works with the Shpibo family, um, three three women. And um, during the pandemic, they they started offering remote healing, and she was saying there was a lot of pushback from that. She was saying people were saying, "Well, that's that's not very traditional, or that's just." farcical it doesn't work and and she was saying for the shpibo that's actually that used to be a large part of their work was actually remote healing uh, working at a distance but i think for a lot of people that that seems like a very foreign concept like how how can you work with me at a distance and actually affect me 
on a physical level, on a mental, emotional level, on a spiritual level, if you're not actually in my presence, if you're not touching me or giving me a plant or a medication, how, how can you possibly affect me in that way? Because I am. <laughs> I, I am touching you and uh, I am there and you are here and there is no distance. There's no distance in the time of time or space in the heart. And we're all in the same field. And I don't know that I know how it works, but I do know that it works. I know that it's, I'm actually able to do more than I can. Like I'm really good at what I do with my hands, but, uh, I feel that there's more, it's easier for me to get out of the way and just let the healing come through. When I'm not moving and touching, I'm able to just open even more and yeah. What would you say are some of the common things people come to you for? Are there, are there commonalities or certain archetypes of ways in which people are suffering or certain sicknesses that, that you find people are, are looking for answers for? Yeah, it's a range. Sometimes it's uh, a stuckness. Like recently I had a woman who just had this blockage to learning. She's wanting to learn a language and <clears throat> there's just so much resistance and it traced back to, you know, when she was a kid and we just worked with that whole thing and it shifted it was very cool uh, on the whole other end of things for some reason broken bones i'm really good with broken bones uh and people wanting to to really understand what's holding them back from moving forward or last night I had one that was um, wanting to understand dreams. These dreams that were recurring and needing to understand what they were trying to say and how to, how to work with them. So it can be all different kinds of things. Well, great. Well, we, we're at two hours. Um, <laughs> yeah. Is, is there anything else you'd like to talk about? Anything we didn't touch on that that's on your mind and, and you'd like to share? I'm feeling pretty complete. Um, it's a beautiful conversation and uh, really a pleasure and an honor. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, well, thank you very much for sharing. Um, if if people, if anyone is interested in, in reaching out to you or, or learning more about you, is there a way they can do that? Yes, I have a website, which is into the heart of the world dot earth. Who knew there was a dot earth? I was so excited when I saw that. <laughs> 
and they would just reach out to you and then they you would schedule a, a session or an interview or you just jump right in and begin working with them? If someone's ready to jump right in, we can. If someone wants to just have a, a free consult to see if it fits, I'm open to that too. Well, great. Well, thank you so much, Linda. Uh, you've, you've had a fascinating life and um, I, I was very fortunate also to, to be able to work with Iboga and it's, uh, what to say about it. It, it, it's amazing. It's a, it's a fascinating, fascinating teacher, extremely profound. So um, I think you're, you're definitely in for a journey and just something amazing. There's, there's something truly magical about that, that plant, that tradition. So I really wish you the best on that and, and the best in, in your journey. And, um, I, I hope one day our paths cross maybe with, with Kylie or something. And, uh, that would be, be really beautiful. Yeah. I look forward to that. Thank you so much. Many blessings on your path as well. All right, everyone. That's it. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Linda. Uh, she's a really fascinating woman. She's had a, a very interesting life. Um, my friend Kylia spoke very, very highly of her, of her, her capabilities of working as a healer and, and a guide and, and, uh, and someone who carries a lot of wisdom. So I hope you enjoyed that episode. As always, if you are able to support this podcast, that's a really big help to me. Patreon is a really great option. Um, it's a website and you can sign up and join for as little as a dollar a month. There's different tiers you can sign up for. Those tiers give you different things back, things like early access to shows, bonus material, Q&As. That's a really big help to me to continue to bring on these guests, to, to shoot, to edit, to, to produce all these shows. Uh, to all the people who have done that, as always, thank you very much. Um, your support is, is very deeply appreciated. There's also the ability to direct donate via PayPal. I'll put a link to those in the show notes. If you're not able to do that, as always, uh, just some of the really small things really help in getting the show out to a bigger audience. So if you're listening on YouTube, hitting the subscribe button, uh, turning on the notification bell, liking the video, leaving any questions or comments in the comment section. And then if you're listening to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, leaving a starred rating and a short review, that's a really big help. And also Spotify now gives you the ability to rate the show as well. Um, I've shot a number of these podcasts in advance because I'm going to be gone for three months uh, running plant dietas in, in Ireland, Israel, and New York. Um, so this is the last one I'm shooting before I head out on that trip. So um, I'm not sure the, the, the guests that are coming up after this, but as always, I, I hope to bring on some, some really fascinating people. So thank you all for tuning in. Thank you all for the support. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope this finds everyone well, and I will see you on the next one.
Tum.